1: Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Max Essa. Behind me now. Today's episode is a little different. It's called Life or Death. I'm pretty sure we've never done a three-story episode before. Now, I'll talk about the final story at the end of the episode. But in a little bit, we're going to hear from Scott Whitehair, a story we call Dead to Me. We'll be hearing a recording of Scott in the great city of Chicago at his own show, This Much is True. Check it out at thismuchistrue.com. But we're going to kick things off here with a story by Michael Schalke. That's S-H-A-W-K-I. Michael wrote in to us at our submissions page at uh, risk-show.com, pitched this to us, and I said, yeah, let's let's hear this sucker. Come on in. Give a listen to this. This is Michael Shockey with a story we call The Beast is Real.
2: So at this time, I was 17 years old, I was in uh, my senior year, and uh, in my English honors class, we were uh, just starting to read Lord of the Flies, and uh, our teacher, Mr. Braille, he just got up and he was introducing the book, and he just was like, hey, I got a question here, guys. How many guys believe humans are inherently evil? And everyone rose their hand but me. Everyone kind of snickered, made fun of me, like, oh, look at Goody Two-Shoes over here. And at the time I was working at Target and my dad, for some reason, he had like an image problem about me pushing carts at 17, like I was supposed to be like successful already. And my mom had been working at a department store. So he had kept on pushing me into working in one of those because you wear a suit, you look prestigious. It's nice, even though you're only making like seven bucks an hour. So I finally went in there where I was selling men's pants and accessories. Pretty boring for like six months. Nothing happened really. Like barely anyone came in. And then one day, my boss just walked by me. And he was telling me and the guy next to me in the department, like, hey, Mike, you're training your first person today. And as he's walking away from me, he goes, he was a disarmory discharged Marine. And one thought like went through my head. It was like, at that time, I was like, I learned that if you got this discharged, discharge, you couldn't vote. And I thought, that made you a bad person. So I'm expecting the worst monster that I was like, I'm training someone that couldn't be controlled by the military. How is he going to listen to me, you know? And I weighed, what, 125 at the time, and I was like six foot. I was a very scrawny, awkward kid. So about a minute or two later, this guy in a suit comes strolling down, like, the uh, pathway that we always kept on noticing. We're like, oh, this has to be the guy. He's in a suit. He's doing, like, the weirdest walk I've ever seen. Very shaky movement of, like, his shoulders and his legs. I've never seen so much movement in a body before. That was, like, the very first time. Anytime now I've seen that walk afterwards, it's usually, like, with drug addicts, kind of. Or, like, a guy that's acting like he's a pimp. And I was like, that's got to be him. That's Joe. He comes up and he's like, hey, I'm Joe. And so I shook his hand and he just squeezed my hand so hard. So my first line was, hey, Joe, like, where'd you just come from? You know, I didn't know if he was going to say from the military or any other thing. He was like, oh, this is my first job ever. And I was like, oh, that's cool, man. So what do you like doing for fun? I thought military guy, he's going to talk about some awesome parties. He said, eh, not much. And then he just blurted out, by the way, I have heads in my basement. I didn't know how to react for like a second or two and then I just went with a quick impulse of ha ha, good one, you know? But in my mind, I was like, did he just say that? And I kind of like glanced over. like the guy in the next apartment heard him clearly. So my plan of attack then was to make the quickest training ever. You know, it was like, let's get in, get out real quick. And so I show him like the register for like five minutes and then he just walked away. And you know, under normal circumstances, I probably would have like tried getting someone back in, like, hey, let's go back. But with Joe, I was like, All right, he wants a graze out there, away from me, totally fine. By talked to the shoe guy, and I was like, Hey, what do you think I should do? And he was like, Joe's kinda staring at you kinda weirdly. Let's try getting someone else also over here. And he was like, No offense, maybe you switch departments. Let's just see what your manager says. So I called my manager, and I tell him I'm like, Hey, I'm kind of a little bit nervous here, he's like, I I bet you Joe's nervous just like you are, and I was like, no, I don't think he's nervous just like I am, and at that point, I looked back, and he's just kind of creeping behind a coat rack, and he's just kind of staring off at me, and I'm like, quickly looked back, like I was just I like, yeah, I clearly was not gonna look at you, Joe, that, don't, don't murder me or anything, so lunch break comes around, I've got the last half of the day, maybe he'll be better, maybe he's not a morning person, Although I don't know many morning people were already telling about having heads in their basement, you know. So, I go. And I come back. And I told Joe, hey, you want to go take your lunch? He was like, no problem. He just leaves. Bam. That was the last time I saw Joe for like a good five hours. I was like, this is the best day of my life. The guy left. Me and the shoe guy were just like high-fiving. We're like, well, I guess he wasn't made for retail. So... Normally what happens in department stores, at least at this one, was that they scheduled everyone at six fifteen. Everyone left together, everyone's safe, closers come in together, and then they all leave together. So six fifteen, my closer hadn't shown up yet. I had no problem. Joe was gone, I was living life kinda. Told me he was gonna be fifteen minutes late. No biggie. I had nothing planned. First day of Christmas break and it's snowing outside, so it's like I know I'm gonna have a slow drive outside. I'll be fine. So he comes in, I give my till. Off to the uh, managers. Tell them, hey, I'll be back tomorrow. I'll see you guys. I start walking out the employee exit. And I'm like right at the sidewalk where it's like meeting up with the actual parking lot. And I'm about to take that step. And I was just taking like, a breath and kind of like looking back a little bit at the day. But at the same time, like, I can't believe I just met that guy earlier. My friend's going to love this, that I met some weirdo. And as I'm coming down, there's like an ice patch. I- I take a step and I get pushed from behind. Another time at 17, I didn't really have good choices and friends. So I had thought, this is one of my friends pushing me on the ground. I get up, look around. It's not one of my friends. It's Joe. First thought that was like, what the hell? This guy left at lunch and he's been hanging around here. All right. I'm really freaked out by this guy. The facial expression that he's giving is probably by far the scariest look besides when I've made my dad angry. It's kind of like one of those looks, except... He's not my dad, so it's like really freaky, you know. And it's, I'm like, all right, let's just play this off. We'll be fine. Maybe he's just going to say some words to me. No, this conversation will be over. And then he just asked me this weirdest riddle. He goes, are you a man's man or a woman's man? For like a second or two, I'm just like, what the fuck did he just say? The other part of me is like, let's be a smart ass and just... Two answers came quickly out of my mouth. It was, hey, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm straight, not gay, but I have nothing against gay people. Like, it was just like, I think I covered all my bases here with him, you know? I think I'm free. And Joe reacted quickly because he basically reached into his coat pocket. And I'd never seen a Switchblade besides in movies. So I wasn't really, like, in touch and. He just flung open the switchway like it was nothing. It was just drilled into his mind of how to do it. Bam. I'm still in the suit. It's cold outside, but all I'm feeling is just all this panic and nervousness of now that there's a knife. And I think something bad's really going to happen here. I was like, this is no longer something suburban. This is something you see in the movies. And the only fight move I knew that could have worked and would have worked was just kicking him in the balls and making a run for it. I had dress shoes on, and I know he's got junk that I can kick. And I was like, I think I can be really quick, precise, and then make a run for it. I knew where my car was located, and I knew as soon as I got there, I could call for help. So I don't know how I saw them. I don't know if he was just looking at fright over my face because my face had to have been pale by this point because I'm still shocked that he's showing the knife. And then I just went for it. Like something said, this is where you become a man. You kick him in the balls and you run. And he caught my leg. And then he just threw it right back down. And I just slip. And my head hits a patch of ice. And the very first thing that I'm thinking is, oh, my head hurts. And then, before I even knew it, Joe was right on top of me. And he got my legs into a hold. And then my other hand got tucked underneath my like thigh here, I guess. And then he just takes the switchblade. He started tearing in the first hair. Didn't really start going on. What was happening? I'm still in shock. I think from both the head hits and out of it from that, but at the same time, I'm like, maybe I'm out of it and dreaming this right now. This has got to be a nightmare. I'm going to wake up out of this. It was about the third one, I think. Because the third one is where it just tore right through skin. And I screamed as I wanted the world to hear the scream. Because I'm like, someone's going to help me now. I'm wiggling, but I can't wiggle out of this hold. He's more than twice my size and has strength on me. I'm already weakened from now. The cuts, the hit on the head. I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this now. So... He's doing 8 or 9 cuts and he's being precise like I looked at his face twice. It was happiness, it was anger, it was craziness kind of all wrapped up in the one like it was just the scariest looking face because he's taking joy out of this right now. So I just started yelling these words out as loud as I could just thinking someone's gonna come out for one of these. I yelled out rape, I yelled out help, I yelled out fire, I yelled out he's stabbing me and He kind of tried covering my mouth, but it really didn't work because I could still wiggle my head. So then I'm thinking no one's going to come to my rescue. I'm going to die a virgin in a mall parking lot. The blood at this point felt like someone just poured a soda kind of like that amount like, just like I could see it trickling around the ground. And then he went through the pants. I feel the tear on my left first, my inner thigh blood's coming out and I'm like, Is this really going to be the way I'm going to die? I'm going to be castrated now, I guess. I think he's going to go for the junk. This is a true psycho we're dealing with. Then, goes under the right one. I'm like, I'm weak. I'm done for. I think this is it. The other end of the parking lot, I see like a yellow flashing light. Then I hear words. You! Stop! I see his head like look up, and he just leaves. He just ran. I'm kind of getting up. The legs hurt a lot and the blood is kind of steaming through. And the very first thing I notice is my suit coat and my coat just falls right off my arm. But my shirt is dangling by a string from above my elbow to about my bicep. He had stabbed me. What I found out was 15 times. There were a couple where like he hit bone. The mall security guard walks up to me. This first line wasn't like, are, are you all right? It wasn't something comforting. It was like, hey, we need to go file out a police report. He's got this authority. Coming from the authority that my manager had just exemplified earlier in the day, authority had just fucked me over and gotten me into this place. At 17 years old, all I wanted was my mom and dad. Luckily, mom and dad lived 15 minutes away and I'd never seen so much fright in both my mom and dad's face. I see my dad and... He said, son, let's go to the hospital. I cried in their arms for like 10 minutes. I just didn't want to leave their arms. Joe eventually gets fired. We settle outside of court with the department store. Joe, he gets psychiatric care. We've got a restraining order on him. All right, never going to see him again. I just want to put this all behind me. So, going to my freshman year of college, I come home for Easter break. And I've just left my parents' house. My dad calls my girlfriend's phone. And I think I've forgotten something. No, my dad tells me someone just visited as soon as I left. And it's Joe. So when he came to the door, he's like, all I wanted to do was apologize to you and your son. And my dad's like, get off the fucking yard. You should know what you did to my son. I'm going to kill you if you don't leave. You know, like there's certain situations, I guess. You do something, it's better if you just leave them alone. When I look back at this now, at Target, nothing would have ever happened like this. I would have been sweating, pushing guards, maybe even sold it this day, I don't care. After that, didn't take my dad's advice on any other jobs. After all this has happened, I still have to write the story on Lord of the Flies. Now, obviously, my viewpoint on humans being inherently good has changed drastically, I think. So I decide I'm going to do it from the inherently evil and apply what I just went through and showing it maybe humans are inherently evil I turned in the paper after like a couple of days my teacher took me off to the side and he said hey Mike can I see you and he was okay Remember at at the beginning before Christmas break you you were the only student that took inherently good and I read your paper I understood what happened to you I just don't want you to lose sight of that that I don't want you to give up I want you to keep on keeping that mindset because those are always my favorite students to keep on going. So all throughout now, ever since this has happened, though, I am 30 now. I haven't given up hope at all like that. There is good in people like we've all been through something bad in our lives. Those are the things that I think always bring us back up to realizing how good life can be, though.
3: I
4: can remember three things about Jeff Wiles. So one, in high school he was a pretty nice guy, pretty harmless guy. Two, he looked kind of like a bird had mated with one of those big novelty lollipops.
3: He was a
4: very strange looking guy. He was all head. <laughs> And three was that he was involved in one of the most epic fights in Burl High School. And by epic fight, I mean anything but epic fight. Um, it was in the cafeteria one afternoon where uh, Jeff had run into Donnie Kemp. Now, Donnie Kemp, two-thirds of, two-thirds of Don's uh, body weight were braces and glasses. And somehow, these two titans crossed paths. <laughs> and decided that their differences could only be resolved by blows. And, and by blows, I mean not even close.
3: <laughs>
4: they stood about seven feet apart and wildly waved their arms at each other. Um, Don had more of like one of these and Jeff had more of the windmill. They were never in danger of touching each other. Uh, teachers didn't move in to stop it because, technically, it was just aerobic exercise.
3: But after, like,
4: four minutes of fanning each other, finally a teacher came up. Mr. Grusick put his arm around each other, and he's like, all right, guys. Take it to the office. And they watched shoulder to shoulder like they hadn't been fighting right up the ramp and out of the cafeteria. These were the th- three things I remembered about Jeff Wiles. And none of them were going to help me now as I stared at the blinking cursor on my computer screen. It was October 2009, and I was celebrating my wedding anniversary with my wife. Um, at the, at this point, I was in the office, uh, rearranging my fantasy football league uh, team, and checking email. And if you want to give, before you give me shit about that, on my anniversary. <laughs> This marriage was already way dead.
3: <laughs> yes.
4: Um, here's what we were doing that night that I interrupted. The romance that I interrupted. Um, we were watching edited for television Pulp Fiction, <laughs> eating badly freezer-burned popcorn shrimp, and drinking $3 bottles of wine. That's, that's, what I inter- that's the romantic evening I interrupted for fantasy football, so don't give me any shit. Um, but as I'm sitting there uh, Facebook window's open and a box pops open and it has Jeff Wiles' face in it and it says hey and I'm like yeah I mean I'm sure you guys have had this happen to you like you know late at night somebody you haven't seen in 20 years gets drunk and they're like hey man what's going on seen any good movies the last 19 years (laughs) So I'm like, okay, it's one of those things. And I'm like, hi. Um, and it's like, this is Jeff's wife. I'm like, well, Truly is someone for everyone. Um,
3: <laughs>
4: hello. And she's like, I wanted to reach out to Jeff's friends. Because I came home last night and I found that Jeff had died. I didn't know what to say. I'm, I don't think there's a sideways smiley face that says, I'm sorry for the tragically premature death of your spouse. So I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And she went on to tell me, I came home from work. I found them. She started telling me about their lives together. She mentioned their kids together, about how, what a shock it was that she had found them. And I, I didn't know what to say. And she went on and continued to, to talk. And I I couldn't break it off because maybe this woman just needed to talk to somebody who she didn't know, like a faceless stranger out there through Facebook. And so I listened for like a half an hour. She went on and didn't know what to do and and told me things, the vacations they had gone on, and I listened. I I said what I could. I I said I didn't know Jeff well, but I remembered he was a really nice guy. Um, I didn't mention the slap fight at all. (laughs) And uh, finally she said, well, when there's plans for some sort of service or anything, I'll let you know. Thank you for talking to me. And so I closed the window, and it hit me. Here I am. It's my wedding anniversary. I, I still have this. I still have someone who cares about me. They're sitting right in the other room. Jeff, Jeff's wife, they would kill for this right now. It was taken away from them suddenly, and here I am, just, just not appreciating it at all. So I went out into the other room, and I looked at Tara, and I said, Hey, baby. Well, you, let's mix up some more cocktail sauce for that shrimp.
3: <laughs>
4: Go ahead and open another bottle of three-buck Chuck, and let's check and see if maybe there's a free preview weekend of Cinemax or something.
3: <laughs>
4: Romantic, advanced cable. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we spent the night, but this haunted me. Jeff, Jeff Wiles dying, it it bothered me. And uh, soon I went home to Pittsburgh for the holidays. And it was just stuck in my mind. And anybody I saw from from high school, I'd be like, Do you remember Jeff Wiles? And they were like, this laugh on." And I'm like, Yeah, but that he's 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 dead. And people were like, What what? Because we you know, we're all relatively young. And it really ate at me. Like, my last name's Whitehair. His is Wiles. He sat right behind me, and I'm like, This is it's too close to home. It just it, it was eating me alive. I was at dinner and my mom Over the holidays, she'd say, do you want some more ham? And I'd be like, what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) Or my nephew Donovan would run up and he'd say, Uncle Scott, look at my new truck. See, you better hang on to it, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Cherish that. Because tomorrow that might be nobody's truck. (laughs) Out one night with my friend Chuck, uh, my one of my oldest friends, and we were sitting in his unfinished basement eating a giant uh, plastic barrel of pork rinds and drinking a thirty pack of Keystone Ice,
3: <laughs> and talking
4: about Jeff and Toasting him and saying things like "You've got to appreciate every moment in life, man." Um, as we sat there in the basement, I remember at one point saying, "It's like every moment's a poem, and you got to like you're in charge of writing that." I said this as I'm pissing in Chuck's bathroom, or er, his basement sink so I didn't have to go upstairs. And then finally, at the end of the night, we gave each other a big hug and were like, man, don't forget how fragile life is. And then I got in my car and drove home after 15 Keystone ice And So I went back to Chicago, and it still bothered me a little bit, but I, w- I was getting over it, and you know, being away from Burl, having people to talk to about it made it go away a little bit, but one day I'm sitting at the computer, and Facebook's up, and I see Jeff Wiles in my feed, and it says, a pony has wandered onto Jeff's property in Farmville, and he rescued it. (laughs) I'm like, this is kind of (laughs) weird. But then I thought, you know, maybe his wife obviously has access to the account, maybe she's still messing, or maybe it does it on its own, Maybe she's still doing it. Like some people, they, they take care of their grief by like burying themselves, you know, in the, company, in the family business or, or, or digital farm. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: maybe, maybe this is how she's healing. And it's like, oh, none of my business. I'm just going to ignore that. So a couple weeks later, I see another thing that pops up. That's a little more specific. It's an actual update. It says, uh, long day at work. And I'm like, yeah, you're dead. Yeah, no, it was an extremely long day. But I'm like, again, like I'm picturing like maybe she's putting on her, his clothes and going to, maybe she's living as Jeff now. I don't know. But like everybody's grief is there. I'm like, I'm just going to ignore this because there's just too much potential for me to make it worse. So I ignore it. Until a couple weeks later, there's an update that says, Oh, going to spend the night with my lady. Like this has gone too far. <laughs> so I just I like kept I just kept Facebook away. I just didn't look at it anymore. I'm like, I don't I don't want anything to do with this. And I forgot about it for a while. But then like a month later, I was hanging out with some friends and we were having some drinks and the, the topic came up of like life after death and the spirit world. And I'm like, I have a story. <laughs> I know a guy who somehow broke through and made it back to our world. And all he chooses to communicate is polls like who's hot or not. (laughs) And of course my friends hearing this, they're like, you have to ask right now and get to the bottom that." And I'm like, no. Because here's the thing. Like, what if? I mean, it's this woman who was so, she lost her, her husband. And I didn't want to be the person, if there was some explanation, I didn't want to be the person to prick open that wound that she was trying to heal. Then I had another couple of beers and I got online. And <laughs> <laughs> so I start, I open the text window and I say, Hi! And immediately it comes back, Hey! I'm like, I don't mean to be too forward. But I was under the impression, is this Jeff?
3: And
4: he comes back, yeah. And I'm like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I believe that you were deceased. (laughs) And he types back immediately, oh yeah.
3: (laughs) What had happened
4: was that Jeff's ex-wife had gotten control of his Facebook account and told everybody she could that he was dead. (laughs) Well, that's bad enough, but then what I got angry about was if you know, if you're Jeff and you know that this may have happened, you should probably go to great lengths to let us all know that you still walk amongst us. (laughs) I shouldn't have to find out through the pony you rescued. And then the absolute worst part of this whole thing is that at that point in the text conversation, uh, I was turned into the guy from high school who's contacting somebody in a weird way. And I'm like, uh, do, do, so you seen any good movies
3: the last? <laughs>
4: I thought back to that day. Jeff Wiles, sinewy, Sweating. Swinging his arms in the cafeteria for all he was worth. And I wondered, all the laughing that we did, would we have laughed if we had known then how powerful he would become? (laughs) (laughs) To not only run a successful catering business and, and family farm, to... To to be a heartbreaker of the level that you would drive a woman to this point where she would tell people you were no longer on Earth.
3: <laughs> and then finally his
4: greatest trick of all, to cheat death itself. <laughs>
5: Father was born in the mountains technically he came from a middle-class East Coast family but his heart was in the mountains and it was a love unparalleled to almost anything else in his life in the early to late 70s he spent a lot of time in Canada that was sort of where he became a man he learned to climb there he met many of his best friends there um, and in 1989 those mountains called him back all of my memories of my father are are very dear, and he and I were, were buddies through and through. Not all of them are pleasant memories. I remember him having a terrible temper, and there were times when I made him absolutely furious. I remember once I tattled on him to my mother because he had taken me climbing on a rock, at a rock quarry, and um, of course, no one was allowed to climb there, but of course he thought it was pretty cool to take this little girl up and teach her how to climb. And I was, of course, wearing inappropriate shoe wear, a lesson of my life. (laughs) I was wearing these purple (laughs) Velcro sneakers with a Care Bear strap. And he, of course, didn't rope me up to anything. It's just sort of free climbing. And I lose my shoe. My shoe falls off. So instead of bringing me down to the bottom, he leaves me hanging there on the ledge while he goes down and gets my shoe. And, of course, I was kind of tickled by this, but I also thought, you know... I'm going to go home and tell mom about this, because I love when she gets a little mad at him, because she's so funny when she gets mad. I, I remember thinking this. And I told my mother, and she was so furious with him. They got into a terrible, terrible fight, and I like felt so so guilty for having, I guess, <laughs> reneged on his trust a little. No, but my father and I were very, very close. Uh, he and I loved listening to the music of Ry Cooter, one of the albums that we listened to all the time was Get Rhythm. And I remember being in our living room in Maine, and he was wearing this blue bathrobe that my mother had given him for Christmas. And he blasted this song, Get Rhythm, and we were just dancing and having the greatest time. And there was this patch of sunshine on the carpet that I just remembered trying to step on and like playing with this patch of sunlight, having such an amazing time with him just wanting to savor that moment, even then, as a child. But my father was always going away. He, he spent almost every weekend climbing, and the memories that I have of him, while they're incredibly vivid, are also pocked with the memories of not being with him and being with my mother and spending lonely weekends together, the two of us. And granted, my mother and I have always been close, but I do remember that absence. in april of 1989 he and his climbing partner chris went to the columbia ice fields they had spent i believe about five days climbing in and around the area and were at odds often there was tension between the two of them chris was about five years younger than my father and my father was suffering from early onset arthritis he was told by his rheumatologist that he had about maybe five to ten years before he would be completely debilitated. And so he felt like he really had to sort of seize the day and take advantage of what time he had left and he often went to extremes in order to do so. And so in the days preceding this climb up Slipstream he and Chris were really pushing the envelope. In every climb that they made they were not roping up. They were essentially soloing together. So on April third, nineteen 1989, my father and Chris attempted to make an assault up Slipstream. Slipstream is a 3,000-foot frozen waterfall that's located along the eastern face of Mount Snowdome and Jasper National Park, Alberta, Canada. And the first time it was climbed in 1979, um, it took the two men who, who initially climbed it three days to get to the top, um, because it's literally 3,000 feet of frozen ice and it's incredibly dangerous because at the very top people don't understand that the top of snow dome is a glacier and there are these huge overhangs and seracs that break off at intermittent levels particularly when it starts storming and when the wind is blowing um it's incredibly dangerous because a lot of ice and snow can fall down on you and it can kill you instantly But my father had become obsessed with this route. It was the mark of extreme climbing. That was the mark of him being able to achieve something that he wasn't sure that he totally could. And he had this manic... I guess, vision of needing to achieve that, because if he could just get to the top of that, everything would be great. And that's how he often looked at life. It was like, if I only just had this one more thing, if I could only just get to the top of this mountain, or if I only could just perfect this song on my guitar, um, everything about him was obsessive compulsive. Um, And in fact, he had actually been diagnosed with a very severe case of manic depression prior to the trip to Slipstream. I remember when I was little, when I was four, actually, my grandparents came to visit us. Um, we were living in Maine at the time, and my father stayed up for two days straight, taking apart his silver chirocco in the garage and putting back together the, all the parts of the engine. It was like he just like he always had to be working with his hands and doing something. It was as if he needed to be manic in order to stave off the effects of the Depression. So they had, they got to the bottom, they geared up. It was a beautiful morning, so they got to the top without incident, I think by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was the best climb the two of them had ever done together or separately. It was like this huge high. Of course, my father, who had spent so much of his youth in the Rockies, this was a huge coup for him, and it's like you can see the, the Valley of the Ten Peaks, I think, from the south, and you can see Mount Temple and all of these places that he had climbed in the past, and it was like being with old friends, you know. So they had lunch and started packing up their gear and were discussing how to descend when an afternoon storm rolled in. And um, the weather was really setting in quickly, as it does in the mountains. I mean, it's so rapid. The two of them had established a precedent in the prior days uh, of not roping up together, because roping up in a descent can take an incredibly long time to get down. And when you need to get off the mountain fast, it's not always in your best interest to rope up. Um, but they were not in agreement about that. And they really didn't know each other well enough. Uh, they maybe met like a month or two before. So they didn't know each other well enough to know when to push back a little. And so they chose not to rope up in the descent. But the thing is, when you're on a glacier, you can't really see it. I've never been to the top of Snowdome before. But from what people tell me, the surface, usually the light is so flat, it's so monochromatic that you can't really see the surface of the snow. But when the light hits it at the right angle, you can see all the pock marks from where there have been ice bridges formed over crevasses. So you're basically playing Russian roulette if you don't rope up. You can step through something like that and be gone. And if you're not roped up, you have no leverage. There's no lifeline. So as the weather got worse, my father approached the lip of the Massif in search of the descent gully. And apparently Chris had been packing up his things. He turned into the, like, the blinding whiteness and there was no one there. And so he tried to get down, but the weather was too terrible, and he knew if he tried to get down by himself, he'd die. So he was up at the top of Snow Dome for three hours, waiting for the other team on the route that day to get to the top. They they all got to the bottom. The fall happened on April 3rd. They got to the bottom by the morning of April 4th, and then attempted a search and rescue attempt, but the weather was so terrible, they had to put it on hold. Meanwhile, back in Maine, um, so this was April 4th, I remember waking up that morning. My mom and I always slept in my parents' bed when my father was away. And I remember waking up really early, early that morning and my mom was still sleeping and I could see the sun breaking on the horizon. And I remember watching the shadows on the ceiling shift and wondering about my dad in the mountains. And I remember wondering what he was going to bring back for me when he came home. And I really, I I thought about it, and I was like, I wonder if he misses me. And that was about six weeks before I was about to turn six. And that was a really exciting, like I was very excited to turn six. And then that night, my mom was preparing dinner and the phone rang and she went to answer it. I remember I was up at the counter coloring and nobody was on the other line. And so she she was like, okay, well that's weird And she hung up the phone And went back to making dinner And about maybe like 45 minutes or an hour later The phone rang again And by this time we were sitting down to eat And she went to answer the phone And again, there there was this click and then no answer She told me later, she thought, you know Maybe he has a bad connection Maybe maybe, is this bill trying to call And of course she had been concerned the day before Because he hadn't called and checked in and was sort of like, well, well, but he does this sort of thing sometimes, so she didn't know what to think about it. So it's just a little strange. So we cleaned up, and I had my bath, and we were going back upstairs to go to sleep, and uh, she was reading me a bedtime story. I remember it was blueberries for Sal. And we were in the middle of the story, and there was a knock on her front door. And... <laughs> I'll never I'll never forget that um, that feeling. You know in that moment that something is wrong, when you can feel your mother begin to tense in fear, you know that something has happened. And she looked at me and she said, "Laurel, stay put." And she turned out the light. and she went to answer the door. and when she did, it was, uh, it was three of our closest friends um, who had come to deliver the news. And apparently what had happened was Chris had tried to call earlier in the evening, but when he heard my mom's voice on the phone, he couldn't tell her. And I could hear these voices downstairs in the front hall. And I was so afraid, she had told me to stay put, but I was so afraid of what was going on that I crept downstairs. And I saw her in the front hall, just sort of surrounded by these three of our very dear friends and her face was in her hands. And I just said, Mommy, what's wrong? And she looked up at me and she said, your father's not coming home, Laurel. It's the kind of thing you'd never forget. <laughs> and so after that, it was it's kind of a blur. The next thing I really remember was um, the day of the service, seeing all of these people sitting in the church, and I knew that they had all come for this. And I laughed. i I remember laughing. I felt so like self-conscious and so aware that everyone was feeling sorry for me. And I hated when people felt sorry for me. I hated that pity and I hated um, being condescended to. Even as a child, I, re- I remember knowing what that felt like to be condescended to, I think. And I just remember covering my mouth because I knew it was so inappropriate to be laughing but that I couldn't, I couldn't help it because it was so strange. And just like that... He was gone. There was no more father. It was like there were framed photographs, and that was it. And I remember thinking even then, being fearful, because, I mean, we certainly didn't have a camcorder or anything, so there was no recording of him. There was no video or tape or anything, and I was so afraid I would lose the memory of his voice. I remember Mommy and and me clinging to each other. I remember that spring and that summer being incredibly lonely. I remember one incident. It must have been maybe, I don't know, maybe in June of that year. It was after all of the, the cards and prepared meals and the, the bouquets, sun and sympathy, sort of they be, all began to wane. And we'd had dinner um, and I could tell my mom was really sad. Because she didn't want to color with me before dinner time. She didn't want to play dominoes. It was just like she was really reserved. And I thought, you know, i got to do something to make her laugh. I dragged one of the counter stools from the kitchen up to, we had this plastic yellow telephone in the kitchen. And there she was scrubbing the dishes at the sink. And I sort of mischievously looked over at her. And I picked up the phone and I said, Hello, God, I'd like to speak to my daddy, please. And I did it. Because I thought it would make her laugh. And instead she turned to the sink and she just dissolved in tears. And I had never seen my mother cry before. Not like this. And she just kept saying, Bill, oh Bill. And I didn't know what to do. I just stood there on the stool for God knows how long and I, I finally went to her and I, I took her by the hand and I led her around the corner. I sat her down and I crawled into her lap and I threw my arms around her neck and I said, I'm sorry I made you cry, Mommy. I don't know why I remember this, but I, as I was hugging her and I was looking at the wall behind her and there was an electrical outlet along the baseboard and a few months prior to that, I had taken my mother's keys and thought it would be really fun to play a pretend game of driver. And I was probably about three seconds from plugging the keys into the electrical outlet when my father came around the corner and caught me and he grabbed me by the arm and he said oh my god don't do that do you want to die he just said it over and over do you want to die do you want to die and I just thought oh my god oh well maybe that would be better than dealing with this but I remember that moment of like hugging my mother and looking at the electrical outlet and I wondered what death felt like in spite of what we had been told and what was most likely the truth, there was a lot of question as to what exactly happened at the top of Slipstream on the day my father disappeared. Um, I think my mom always found it was odd that Chris could never really approach us. The first time we ever met him was at the service. Uh, and he was very reticent to talk about the details of the climb and the fall and I can certainly empathize with the trauma associated with losing someone and being held responsible, but if it happens on your clock, you got to be accountable for it. In, In the months before my father's fall, he had really been struggling with a lot of things personally and he had been seeing a psychiatrist for a while, but he wasn't taking medication and I think he was trying to deal with it on his own. And he was fighting the onset of age. Um, he was thirty-nine at the time, so he was—I mean, he was—he wasn't old by any stretch of the imagination, but for a climber, you know, you just start feeling the effects of that, especially when you're exposed to the elements in the way he was constantly. And actually, a couple of months prior to the climb up Slipstream, um, he had—he <sighs> had fallen in love with someone at work, and he had made a list of comparisons between her and my mother that my mother found in his briefcase when she was looking for a bill. And apparently the woman had rejected him. And it was just a little odd that after that was when he really started becoming obsessed with Slipstream. He bought books about it. He did research on it. He talked to as many climbers as he could who had already been on the route. And it was almost like this weird transference Of emotion or of obsession or or whatever it was that this woman didn't want him and I I think truly it was more less than it was love but there was some sort of transference there so there were all of these weird things that kind of made you wonder because there's no body did he stage it? did he plan to go away? was he climbing with somebody he didn't know very well because he could convince him that he could I don't know, pay him off or I mean, God knows you don't even want to think that someone you love would be capable of doing something like that. And certainly the record never indicated that he was that kind of a person. But the mind's ability to wander and wonder can create these fantastical, but possible situations that you attach yourself to. I remember my mom and I were We were driving in his Scirocco, which of course never worked because he had tried to take it apart that one time. We were driving in the countryside, and we came up behind this bicyclist, and he peeled off onto a dirt road to the right and pedaled out of sight, and my mom floored the brake so hard that she spelled the car, and she just said, that was your father. And we just sat there, the two of us. But it was like she was convinced in some way that he was out there, that he was still alive, or that he hadn't fallen. And because my mother and I were so close, we sort of, I think, both convinced ourselves that yes, this is the story, this is the story we're telling to people, you know, that he fell and it's unfortunate. And yes, his body was never found, but I think she and I both really believed he was out there someplace. Maybe he was in the Himalaya as a climbing guide and had escaped his domestic responsibilities. We didn't know. (laughs) the development of that myth in my life of the myth that yes, you're told one thing, but really it's this other story. I basically created a mountain out of this myth and really, I mean, I really believed as I got older that my father was out there and I think I've, I've been very fortunate to have the life that I've had. Um, I certainly, I had a wonderful education and I've gotten to do some incredible things in my life and I, I'm so grateful, but a lot of my drive was fueled by this intensity of proving to him whenever he did come back that he was going to be fucking sorry he left. And in college, actually, it got to such a point that I would Google him and try to find him on the internet. I remember like spending hours, you know, going through like the 20th page of Google search results, trying to find like Himalaya Sherpa Guide, Bill Holland and was so sure that I would find him someplace. And I never found him, but I never stopped looking for him. And I think that that tendency to create a myth about something that wasn't real or tangible, this tendency almost to like over-idealize a situation has bled into almost every facet of my life. And I, I basically have existed in this sort of like, this state my entire life. I think it's really affected um, how I view the world. So, two years ago, <laughs> I'm in the middle of this god awful production at uh, PS122, and I'm working for this uh, former film critic, Judith Christ. And I'm like, I, what am I doing with my life? Did I really spend four years of school to go through this? Am, am I suffering for my art? Is, is this what suffering for my art is? And if that's what suffering for my art is, I don't know if I want to be an artist. And I was just really having a rough time. And I, I went to Chelsea Market to buy groceries. I had rehearsal that night and I was really dreading rehearsal. And my phone rings and my mom and I had spoken earlier that day and I thought, fuck. She knows that I bought a pair of shoes with her credit card and I thought she was calling to berate me on the phone. So when I answered the phone, I was kind of abrupt with her. I said, hey mom, what's up? I'm buying groceries right now and I have rehearsal in a half an hour, what's up? She goes, um, uh, Laurel, are, uh, are, are you sitting down? And I said, no, I'm buying groceries. Is everything okay? And she goes, no, well, I, no, why don't I just, why don't I call you back when you're at home? And I said, mom, Hey, what's up? Is everything okay? And she didn't respond. And I started to panic thinking, God, she has cancer. God, somebody's died. Like what the fuck has happened? And she goes, Laurel, they found your father. And in between the time that, like, space of silence and the time she told me the logistics of his discovery, I wasn't sure if she meant if he was alive or dead. What they think happened was that he fell into a crevasse at the top of Snow Dome and basically became part of the mountain. And as the glacier receded over the past 20 years because of global warming, he traveled almost a mile from the initial site of his fall and two young kids were hiking at the base of snow dome in the summertime on their day off and they found him and he because he had been in, surrounded by snow and ice for 20 years he was like preserved so his his jacket his yellow jacket and his pants and his boots were still intact his hair was still intact All of his gear was within, like, a 200-foot radius. It was all there. And I think that that... It was, like, a breaking point for me in my life. That was, like, the first time that I... I had descended from a myth that I had created in my life. And I think that that's the first time that I really accepted that he was gone. Um, And certainly the first time I really began to grieve, for real but there's a great amount of guilt I felt associated with that for blaming him for going away, for being the kind of person who might desert me. So after this play that I was in, um, my mom and I met in Edmonton because they had to figure out what to do with the body. Um, And of course, friends and family just kept saying, it's not a good idea, don't do it, he's not going to look the same. And I I mean, I knew he's not going to look the same. He's been in the elements for 21 years, but we both really needed to see him they were holding him at a funeral home in Edmonton. We met with the funeral director and conferred all of the biographical information, and she led us into this examination room. And, of course, it's very sterile, but they it was very sweet. They had laid him on his back and, and put a baby blue hospital sheet halfway over him and laid a red rose by his side. And she, she led us into the room, and she said, Take your time. And, um... Mom and I approached and even though it had been so long and he had spent so much time alone I still recognized him his mustache was still intact his teeth were still intact I recognized the shape of his mouth and that was was the mouth that told me stories when I was little that sang to me when I couldn't sleep And it was the most peaceful coming to terms that I have ever experienced to know that the story was real.
3: Wake with your head Where the light Always crept Through the glass To your bed, and you breathe, and your breath, it is mine, and your heart, when it stops, when it starts, when it's fast, it's mine. cry and the truth are at rest and your odds and your best they are mine if you're shy if the streaks in the sky shake the window no i was like you and the sun came down and the dust blew around over me come to sight
1: Go to me, go to me, go to me, go to me. This is Jordan Clausen behind me, and that was Laurel Holland, who you should know is raising funds so she can finish her book. It's called Spindrift, the memoir of a climber's daughter. So go to kickstarter.com, look it up, You can help her out. She's a beautiful person with one heck of a story to tell. That's Spindrift by Laurel Holland. Well, that is all for this week, folks. Be sure to check back next week. And come visit us at risk-show.com and thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
3: Come beside me.
1: Go to
4: My nephew Donovan would run up and he'd say, Uncle Scott, look at my new truck. See, better hang on to it, kid. (laughs) Cherish that. Because tomorrow that might be nobody's truck.